Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. And Dominic, this is, I mean, a properly historic moment, isn't it? We are recording this the day after the death of Queen Elizabeth II. I think we're, 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 well, I'm 54. I'm getting old. I'm moving on. But the Queen was an absolute constant throughout my entire life. And um, I, would you know, I'm not surprised at the sense of bereavement I, I felt because I knew that I would I knew that I would be surprised at how I felt. And so in a sense, I'm not surprised at how surprised I am at how I felt, if you see what I mean. I, I, I know exactly what you mean. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's a very sad moment for us in Britain, um, for people who, who love history, who are interested in history, because, of course, a link with history. In other circumstances, we would have been recording this morning about the life, the early life of Winston Churchill, who was, of course, the Queen's first prime minister born in 1874. And her last prime minister... Um, who she met, of course, two days before she died, uh, was Liz Truss, who was born in 1975, almost 101 years later. And that sort of, ex- that that extraordinary fact, yeah. that longevity, that sweep. I mean, you're talking, you know, the Queen in a way is a, is a link with the Victorian past, isn't she? Because she is. so many of the people she she knew when she was young were Victorians. And I think that that is another dimension of how... Uh, uh, of the way that people are feeling moved, um, perhaps even if they're not royalists, um, is that the Queen is part of our, our personal lives because she's been a kind of background presence on the television, her jubilees, yeah. all that kind of thing. But also she serves the country and perhaps the world as well as a kind of living link to earlier ages and perhaps specifically to the Second World War, to yeah. the victory in the Second World War. Um, and she really is the, the kind of the last great figure from that that age. Well, that's why when COVID struck, Tom, um, and loads of our British listeners will remember this, and the Queen gave a national TV address, you know, we will meet again, a referencing Vera Lynn's wartime hit. And of course, it coincided, didn't it, with the, was it the anniversary of the um, Battle of Britain? Uh, yeah. 19, or Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain. Yeah. And there was a, there were all kinds of celebrations planned that then didn't really come to fruition. And there was a sort of sense, wasn't there, that she was she was the embodiment. I mean, it's uh, some people may find this too mawkish, but I think during COVID there was an absolute sense that she was the embodiment of the spirit of 1940 and that people sort of projected. I mean, of course, that's what we've always done with the Queen is project onto her. She was, after all, a mortal human being, but people projected onto her a huge amount of meaning, of sort of patriotic yeah. national meaning, didn't they? Which yeah. is must have been, I mean, we'll talk about this in the podcast, must have been almost intolerably heavy at times to bear, knowing that tens of millions, indeed hundreds of millions, when you include the Commonwealth, of people are watching at every move, but also they've laid a new down with so much emotional yeah. and kind of psychological baggage. I mean, I think kind of literally the the, the crown with which she was... Um, placed on her head is physically very, very heavy. And I think that that weight is absolutely there. And scholars talk of, you know, the monarch's two bodies. So the individual human being and then the kind of symbolic role that a monarch has to play. And I think that one of the things that is remarkable about the Queen is how she kept her, in a way, her first body, her private role, so private 
you know, there is so much about her that we don't know, even though she's probably yeah. the most familiar face, perhaps. of. I mean, she was the most famous woman in the world. Yeah. But the other thing that's striking about her is how incredibly adept she became at using the inherent symbolism of her role. So th- thinking of COVID, th- her role in COVID, the um, the symbolism of uh, her presence at the, hus- at the funeral of her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, when... Um, isolation rules were, were were still very much in force and she sat alone in a pew and yeah. she served i think uh, uh, talking to a lot of friends a lot of friends lots of of whom might i would not particularly put down as enthusiasts for monarchy but all of them it, it was like she was serving as a lightning rod for the the feelings of grief and bereavement that people had had suffered generally throughout the pandemic and i think yeah. that um, the very last photographs of her, you talked about how she, she met Liz Truss, the new prime minister. She looked so frail, but she was yeah. still doing her duty. I have found myself more moved by the spectacle of her as a very old woman, I think, than almost anything else. I found it incredibly powerful. And it's it's to do with the fact that she reminds me of my own mother. But it's also to do with the thought of what an entire lifetime of living in the public eye means. And, yeah. and she must have known she was on the verge of death when she did those last kind of duties at Balmoral. And yet she was still carrying on. And, and I think I, I find it very moving. I think there's something moving about any, any life lived to its conclusion, no matter how long that life lasts. I mean, the BBC montages, which are brilliantly done, I think, of the sort of um, all the, the, the sort of, the film clips of her from her, you know, she was filmed from a very young age, which is obviously not true of most people who live, who were born in the 1920s. Um, and that's sort of, there are very few people whose lives have been charted in that way from kind of giggling toddler all the way through to, you know, mid nineties and yet still going about all the duties. And I think that's part of the thing that gives it the emotional heft that, that you see the whole sweep of the life, don't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. In a way that you don't with most even with with presidents and, and prime ministers, most of their early lives are almost, you know, they're they're lost in the sort of mists of memory. But that's obviously not really true. Of the Queen, well, that is we that is yeah, that that is Go the on. weirdness of monarchy, isn't it? I mean, that is. is that is the kind of the power that someone who has 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 lived in the public eye, really from from kind of you know her birth, but as as a queen for seventy years, it's that that enables her to serve as a kind of image of the country. Yeah. And that well, is why I think, you know, the country will feel dislocated as a result of her loss. Well, Britishness itself, we'll come to this, won't we? But Britishness itself um, had, at the beginning of the 20th century, or, or indeed when she was born in the 20s, Britishness, the, there were lots of different things that connoted Britishness. So, that, you know, you read Orwell or something and it, the, the Royal Navy or the people going into the factory or the Imperial Sweep, the, the sense of industry. Yeah, the clogs on the, mm. the, the the old maids bicycling to Holy Communion, whatever, whatever. So many of those things actually are lost and so many institutions have been tarnished, including in some ways, actually, you know, the monarchy itself has come in for uh, a beating uh, various times since the 1980s. But the Queen remained untarnished, didn't she? Almost entirely untarnished. There were one or two blips that we'll perhaps come to later on in the podcast in the 1990s and so on. But it's extraordinary how much people... See, this is the thing about the monarchy, isn't it? You keep two things in your head at once, that there is a there is a genuinely mortal human being there who has ambitions and anxieties and fears and all of these things. And at the same time, it is this avatar for Britishness and the fact that she was able to keep both those things in play, I mean, that's a, that's a cunning 
and I mean, cunning is perhaps might seem to some people a loaded word, but I don't think it is. It's a very, very clever um, political act. I mean, the Queen was a political animal. And I think if people don't realize that, I mean, of course, the monarchy is political. And I think that's, you know, you could argue, given her success in preserving the institution, she is one of the most effective British politicians, if not the most effective of her of her lifetime. Yes. And, and I would go further and say that I think that in terms of what the monarch has to do, I think she is probably the most successful British monarch. Yeah, a few people have have talked about this, haven't they? Well, I yeah, she ticked she ticked all the boxes that were available to her in a more effective way. To do. Than any, yeah. So obviously, she you know she hasn't invaded France or any you know any of the right. things that uh, <laughs> that a monarch in the Middle Ages might have been expected to do. But you know that was never on the agenda. She was never going to be yeah. <laughs> never going to be asked to do that. But what she was asked to do was to serve as a a symbol of the, of the country. Because I think that saying um, you know that, that there might be the risk of a kind of slightly elegiac tone about. You know, so much has been lost in Britain. Uh, but actually, I think that the Queen's real achievement was that she was able to um, adapt and in some ways perhaps um, encourage other people to adapt to, to as profound a process of change um, as any period in this country's history. And I think that so many of those changes have been for the better. Mm-hmm. And the Queen has moved with those changes. Um, yeah. So, you know... Britain has become, for instance, a multiracial, multicultural society. And strangely, the Queen's background, she was raised as a child of empire. Yeah, absolutely. But she doesn't die, I think, as an emblem of empire. No, I think you're I mean, absolutely she, right. She, she, may do, she, she may do to um, the odd angry academic, perhaps. But by and large, I don't think she does, because I think that no one has ever thought that, that she had a racist bone in her body. And I think that her, her palpable interest in, say, Africa or the yeah. Caribbean, which was unfashionable in the 40s and 50s. Most people in Britain were not interested in the, in, yeah. to the degree that she was, or in India or in Australia or you know, across the whole span of the world, means that when people from across the world have come to Britain, they too can feel that the Queen is interested in them. And I think that that perhaps has facilitated the transition of Britain from a largely monocultural society to to a multicultural society. I don't know whether you'd agree with that. Tom, I totally agree with you. I remember you talking in this podcast um, many episodes ago about Prince Charles and the enthusiasm with which he was greeted in Brixton. Something to do with opening, as he's done, had sponsored projects that have... um, Yeah, including magnificently some riding stables. Which are Some riding stables in Brixton, yeah. very nice. Um, but I think that's an element that people often miss, particularly outsiders. They think that the the royal family and the queen have become symbols of this sort of, you know, this sort of pith-helmeted Victorian imperialism. So, for example, there was a predictably and, and almost comically wrong-headed uh, opinion piece in the New York Times yesterday, just within hours of the Queen's death, saying that she was a symbol of Britain's bloody disengagement from the world, and you know she'd she'd papered over the the horrors of empire and stuff. And I just thought. That is a prime misunderstanding of the of the way in which the Queen's image actually works, because her palpable enthusiasm for me, as you say, for dancing with Kwame and Krumah in nineteen sixty one or whenever it was, and being for, insulted and being being insulted for it by the South African press, who who felt betrayed by it, didn't they? I mean, the- they did. They thought that she would sort of gone woke, as it were. <laughs> um, yes, and, and the sort of the Queen's and indeed Prince Charles's or, or the, the current kings. Um, you know, they're very visible 
delight and enthusiasm when they would meet black school children or, or whatever. The, the, the very clear lack of sort of overt prejudice there, there, all of that sort of stuff, I think, was what was very powerful. You know, and encouraging the idea of Britain as a multiracial um, nation. But anyway, Tom, we should we should crack on with the narrative, shouldn't we? Because we want to. Um, I, it's often sort of said, and I, I may. Um, in 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 very poor, unpatriotic moments, have said so myself that the Queen's life is uneventful and not worthy of study. But actually, it's a brilliant window to talk about how Britain has changed. Oh, I see. You've changed your tune. I have changed my tune. Yeah, <laughs> I have changed my tune. It's too late for all those um, Channel Five documentaries. Yes, um, <laughs> but uh, I reserved, you know, my best energies for this podcast, Tom, as you would expect. I I, I would expect uh, nothing. I like to think we are the well, we are, of course, the People's and the Nation's podcast. I like to think so. Yes. So um, the funny thing about the Queen, of course, she wasn't born to be Queen. So she was born in April 1926, and her father was the second uh, son of George V. So her father, Prince Albert, as he then was, the Duke of York, the future George VI. And I think that the, the, obviously the two biggest influences, I would say, on the Queen, apart from you know Prince Philip, whom she later married, George V and George VI. And there's an obvious continuity, don't you think, Tom? I mean, we've talked about George V. I think we can safely call him a friend of the rest of his history with his stamp collecting. His creased with his, trousers. Um, with his creased trousers. The wrong way, yeah. Well, he would say the right way and the, yes, the rest of us, if yeah. we grease our trousers, which I actually don't, but uh, are doing it the wrong way. But yeah, the sort of, he had made himself, George V, her grandfather, she called him Grandpa England. He had made himself uh, this sort of incredibly humdrum symbol of stolidity, I suppose, and... You know, that, all the stuff about duty and service and all those things. It was really George V who instituted those. That as the sort of the guiding mantra of the institution. Because, of course, his father, Edward VII, had been Edward the Caresser and had been quite a bad boy. Mm-hmm. But George V, his boringness, yes, what we would now call his boringness, was his great asset in a time of political turbulence. And I think his son, Albert, comes to... To emulate that when he becomes king. And obviously he is a massive influence on the late queen. Yes. So she's born now on 21st of April, 1926. Yes. Not born in a palace. Not born in a palace, Tom. No. And and she's she's brought up in a, a kind of townhouse. I mean... Yeah, you know, Piccadilly. Yeah. It, it, it's not exactly, um, you know, it's it's not a slum. <laughs> no, it's, it's not, not a palace. <laughs> um, no. But you say, I mean, you say that... Um, you know, there would have been no prospect of her becoming queen when well, not she no was prospect, born. but she's not born to be queen, as it were. Yes, agreed. But she is. I mean, she's absolutely in the line of yes, yes. Because, but At because, that point, because she would have been third in the line of succession, I guess. Third in the line she? of succession. So there is a sense that she's, um, you know, there's a possibility, a, a possibility there, and she she is George V's first grandchild. Yeah, didn't she? And she he, used to kind of. He used to kind of crawl around on the floor, didn't he? And she would pull him by his beard, and <laughs> that's right. Great larks. Yeah. Yes, it was great larks. Yes, so um, that's absolutely right. And actually, she was quite close to her grandparents because, and this will um, probably astonish some listeners, uh, when she was very small. So in January nineteen twenty-seven. So she's not even one. Her parents abandoned her for six months. They went on an imperial tour. But that's very royal behaviour, isn't it? Well, they wouldn't have said this was an abandonment. They would have said this is choosing, you know, we have to do our duty over, you know, what our natural inclinations might be. So she's basically brought up by her nurse and the king and queen, her grandparents. So, you know, George the V is sort of writing to his son, who's off touring the world, saying she's got four teeth, 
She's driving around in a little carriage, uh, you know, in her she's nursery. She's a very pretty girl, wasn't she? And everyone kind of enthused over. Yeah, and, and she was also How very lively. Good. She was. She was actually at that stage regarded, I think, as quite jolly. Yeah. So, so, so the jolliness, so, you know, she she gets a reputation as quite a solemn child, doesn't she? And there's yeah. a magnificent story of her. I think when she's about three, she 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 says, "My goodness!" in public. Yeah, and it's told <laughs> and off mother, for it. You're very sternly told off for it. So maybe my that's goodness. The, Imagine yeah. not being able to say my goodness. <laughs> no. So uh, maybe that's why um, she, she, in her public pronouncements, in, increasingly comes to seem solemn, and in due course, indeed, will be called priggish, won't she? Yeah, later on in the nineteen so, fifties. So um, uh... uh, but you're right. You're right. The, the, there's a sort of sense of a retreat, I suppose, that, that starts quite early. Um, I mean, interestingly, she's not the queen was not especially well well educated. I think it's fair to say. So. Um, when she was about what 1933, so she's about seven. Um, that her parents decided that she and her new sister Margaret um, needed a governess, and they get this Scottish woman called um, Marion Crawford Crawfee, who is quite sort of, you know, I, I think when you have a Scottish governess in the 1930s, you, you, yeah, you, you know, know what you're getting, getting really. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's kind of hurling jelly around the nursery no. and kind of yes. um, singing songs. Yeah. But she doesn't have, you know, ma a massive amount of formal education. But, so... but that's, I mean, there's this, her grandmother, Queen Mary, is actually quite keen for her to have a good education. But it's her mother, um, yeah. Elizabeth, the future Queen Mother, who's not in favour of that at all. She she just no. thinks that, uh, so every, every time, the you know, uh, Princess Elizabeth, as she was then, is having a lesson, her mother comes in and says, let's go for a pony ride or... Yes, Let's exactly. play cards or that kind of thing. <laughs> but she she does get taught in two key subjects, and that is constitutional history and French yeah. for reasons that are entirely to do with the dramatic events of the abdication, which up bumps her up from third in line to the throne to second in line to the throne. So yeah, so George V dies, succeeded yes. by uh, the king who takes the name Edward, so he becomes Edward VIII. He is. He's an absolute shower, isn't he? I mean, that's... He, uh, I think it's fair to say he's not a friend of the rest of history, Tom. Um, um, so he's a very bad king. Um, yeah. And he runs off with an American divorcee, abdicates. Absolutely. I mean, and absolutely scandalous Shocking behaviour. Shocking behaviour. I mean, thank God that kind of thing doesn't go on yeah, now. Yeah, would never happen again, thank goodness. <laughs> um, so Albert, who will take on the name George, and it's all terribly confusing. Um, yeah. But let's call him George from now on. So he becomes George the Sixth. And Princess Elizabeth is now in line to the throne. Uh, in line, yeah. The throne. And I think that was so famously Al, uh, George the Sixth. I mean, people who've seen the Queen, the sorry, the people who've seen the King's speech will know this story. Really, he never wants to be king. He's extremely upset when his brother abdicates. He's terrified by the role and by the public demands. He, of course, he he famously has this sort of stammer um, and doesn't really like public appearances and so on. Um, his daughter, who is now what? She's about 10. She is suddenly the heir apparent. She has al had already said, I think, um, oh no, she she already has a very clear idea of what she wants to be. She, she later says that she wants to be a sort of country lady with horses and dogs. I mean, that outdoorsy education has has yeah. reaped its rewards already. Yeah. That's what she wants to and, and that possibility is immediately denied her. And there's, there's a sort of story that they move into Buckingham Palace and she says, surely we're not moving in here forever. And um, forever. Yeah, somebody says, no, yeah, forever. 
you know, this is it now. And um, I I don't know. I mean, it's easy to sound too mawkish, I suppose, but uh, that must have been an awful thing for a 10-year-old. I mean, a 10-year-old who's not really, who's already conscious they've missed out on a lot that yeah. other children have because they don't go to school they don't have loads of friends you know a huge classroom yeah. ch- of chattering friends yeah and now they're told you have to live in this very chilly drafty yeah palace and your life is going to be defined by a kind of emotional austerity that's tough but, i would say yeah. Tom. but she she does get the the um deputy provost of eton teaching her constitutional history so, so that's the upside so that's is an it? upside you, you uh, would have and, welcomed and, that at the age of 10 I think so. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Do I don't believe um, and, you. Um, and uh, and she gets taught French. Yeah, she speaks very good French. And yeah. um, and that's an upside too, is it? I think that's an upside. Well, she's a huge okay. Francophile, isn't she? She is actually. She, she is. loves and, and to be fair, since you mentioned the French, I have to say because he doesn't. All, he hasn't always had the respectful treatment on this podcast that he might have done. The president of the current president of France, Monsieur Macron, his tribute to the Queen was very um, heartfelt and moving. And put some other tributes, which we'll maybe come to later on, <laughs> yeah. rather in the shade, I thought, because I thought it was brilliantly done. Anyway, well, that's he said, enough Francophilia. But he said, for... he said um, uh, what was it? She, the, the, the Queen of 16 Nations loved France, uh, and yeah. France loved her in return. Uh, and yeah. I think, you know, the Queen really did love France. Um, her mother, her, her mother uh, was, a, was a great fan of France. She could play the Marseillaise on a mouth organ. How do you, you surely never saw that, did you, Tom? <laughs> it's my extensive reading in, uh, right. in The Life of the Queen Mother. Well, they have this sort of so. There's a there's a very famous account, isn't there? I think it comes from um, Ian Wilson talking about how T. S. Eliot once went to visit um, Buckingham Palace. So obviously, now that they're in Buckingham Palace, they're installed. They can receive all kinds of famous people. And T. S. Eliot went and read the Wasteland to them, and uh, it's actually one of the stories that I like best. Yeah, that they all got the giggles, which you can because Eliot's incredibly sort of serious. I mean, they're <laughs> a very chilly, serious man reading yeah. the Wasteland. And they all started laughing. They couldn't look at each other. And I think that's, I mean, that's a nice, anyway, I don't want to sound like the royal correspondent. Anyway, yeah, so he's crowned George in May 1937. And uh, the Queen, Elizabeth wrote a little essay, which is actually quite sweet because she sort of says how wonderful it was. And a haze, the arches and beams were covered with a haze, a sort of haze of wonder as Papa was crowned. At least I thought so. But then, if you're thinking, oh, this sounds sort of too good to be true, she says at the end, at the end, the service got rather boring as it was all prayers. Yes, I love that. And I know, Tom, thanks to you and your, and your book, Dominion, we have an awful lot of vicars who listen to this podcast. So there is a lesson there for them. Yes. If the too- Queen said it was all a bit boring. <laughs> well, you say that. But of course, one of the things that I think uh, we will talk, we should talk about perhaps a bit later on, or maybe we should talk about it now, is the fact that the Queen is very, very devoutly Christian. Yeah. And I think that um, that is one of the great animating things throughout her entire reign. And I think it, it, so when in due course she comes to be crowned and she's anointed, this ritual of awful ceremony that dates back to the time of Athelstan, yeah. very much a friend of the show. Um, Very much. But ultimately has its roots in in the Old Testament and the anointing of David and Solomon and so on. She takes it very, very seriously. She sees her role as a sacramental one. And I just want to put that on the record, Dominic. Do you know, Tom, when we said we'd do this podcast, I absolutely knew you would use the words sacral queenship or kingship at some stage. But now I've done it, so you don't have to. You have. Um, No, 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 you're absolutely right. I think the, uh, the Christianity is absolutely fundamental to her sense of mission and service um it's obviously very unusual very unusual and some of our american listeners may not 
be entirely, maybe only very vaguely acquainted with the extent to which Britain has become an intensely secular country in lots of ways. That you know, going to church is such a minority um, interest. Apologies to the vicars who are listening, by the way. Um, but the Queen's people always respected her. I think for that, don't you think, Tom? I, I do. mean, the Christianity, think, the Christian that... belief, was part of the sense of her as a link with history. That's absolutely true. I mean, because it is an overtly Christian monarchy, she's supreme governor of the Church of England and the rituals, you know, as we said, of the coronation and of, of her queenship are intensely rooted in Christian assumptions. But I think that paradoxically, um, that is one of the things that has helped her to rule over an increasingly multi-faith society. Because I think... You know, there are lots of Jews, lots of Muslim, and you saw that in the kind of the tone of the tributes from Jewish and Muslim leaders and Hindu leaders mm. uh, to her, that because she took her faith seriously, they felt that that she took their faith seriously. Exactly. I yeah. think they, you know, that there's a feeling that a ruler who 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 took this stuff seriously was likely to to, to understand, yeah, Jewish or or Muslim or Hindu devotions in a way that perhaps a kind of you know, a more overtly secular monarch would. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. That There's somebody else who is a believer, basically, yeah. and, and treats these things with solemnity and respect will therefore be more, as you say, more understanding. Uh, so anyway, yes. So George V has died. George VI is, is now king, replacing his brother. And the queen is sort of sentenced at that point, I suppose, to yeah. this you know the, the, this sort of looming destiny. And there's a, there's a story that she later told one of her portraitists. She says um, she used to some, stand there at Buckingham Palace looking out of the window and she, as a girl, and she says, I used to wonder what people were doing and where they were all going and what they thought about outside the palace. And that's actually quite a sad image. That's that's the image of the – of that's almost yeah. an image of a prisoner. Um, the gilded cage. The gilded cage, exactly. And then, of course, um, he's only been king, you know, what is it, less than three years, three years? Um, yeah, when Britain's plunged in all crises, <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean that's yeah. what that's what obviously gives the King's speech the film its enormous emotional heft is that somebody who never wanted the role, so obviously very unlike Churchill who did want the role and felt that he had you know all his life had been a preparation for this trial, that's not true of of George the Sixth or indeed really of his family, um, and he George the Sixth now as his daughter later would be finds himself, you know, he's absolutely sort of weighed down with meaning by the people of the the empire and the Commonwealth because yeah. he's become a symbol of resistance to Nazism. Yeah, and they could, I mean, they could have been evacuated, couldn't they? I mean, the lots of children, so the princesses, Elizabeth and yeah. Margaret, could have been evacuated, say, to Canada. Lots of British children were, and they didn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it would have so, been so terrible the, so, PR if they had Of course been, it would, of course it would, but, it you know, it, it could have happened. So they they're evacuated out of, of Buckingham Palace to Windsor Castle, aren't they? Yeah, is that right? That's right, Windsor Castle. Um, it's pretty empty. I mean, you know, some sort of more unsympathetic listeners will say, "Oh, well, it's still a castle," but you know, it's kind of pretty bare. Um, there's all kinds of restrictions, so there's sort of um, there's a sort of bare light bulbs and and all this. And I think there is something pretty gloomy about a deserted castle or palace that's all a bit grey and a bit sort of well so we talked about we we talked about the the queen's speech she gave when covid hit and the lockdown hit yeah and that was at windsor and the memories must have been very very intense for her yeah of you know that previous time of crisis 
She gives her first broadcast about this time, so it's October 1940. And that actually is a broadcast to children who have been evacuated to Canada. Yes. Um, and, and she's to America, talking, right? It's yeah, a, so it's, and it's, to America. It's broadcast across the whole of North America. And so obviously it has a kind of propaganda Absolutely. Point. And she's um, 14. I mean, that's a – I mean, thinking about myself at 14, <laughs> the idea of being told you have to broadcast – I mean, probably I'd have loved that, actually. Um, you know, the, the, uh, me. Me, yeah, me, yeah, well, exactly, exactly. And I, I'm on the radio, and I think, the, but I think, obviously, the Queen wasn't a me, me, me kind of person, really. Yeah. Um, Duty, Dominic. Well, I mean, that's what everybody always says, isn't it? And sometimes people say these cliches because they're true. Yeah, you know, you can't it's escape. Clearly from true. Them. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. I mean, of course it is. I would say duty is probably the defining word for her. Uh, of course it is. Abs- sort of service duty and these are the things that every single profile repeats so some listeners may say oh gosh this again but it's impossible to escape from them tom because even if you are i mean i know it, it pains me to to say so but there are anti-monarchists out there who say oh well they have the palaces <laughs> or they have this but i mean the queen i think when she got up every morning she didn't think i'm going to luxuriate in a massive golden bath i mean she sort of thought well, i'm going to go and open a community center in in northampton and, and people may say, oh, well, that's but, not very arduous. But I think if you've done a thousand of them. But, but Dominic, the sense, I mean, the sense of duty is, yeah. is specifically, surely, I mean, no, of course, she's raised, she's raised to it. There is this kind of ideal of, of, of duty that the monarchy has, has come to embody under George V and then under George VI. But, but it is also shaped by the sense of duty that everyone in Britain owes to the country in a time of war, isn't it? I mean, it yeah, is, absolutely. you know, this is the, 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 these are her teenage years. This is where she, her entire character is being shaped. I've often thought also about the Queen that it's a time of privation. And even for, you know, princesses are on ration books and everything. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's easier to be dutiful when there's a lack of choice. It's, it's the kind of the, the, the superfluity of choice that makes duty, I think, more challenging. You yes. know, if you can yeah. do other things, follow other paths, you know, as we see with Harry. But if you're raised in an environment where there is nothing else to do except do your duty, and these yeah. are your formative years, I would reckon it sets you on a kind of, you know, a groove that you can yeah, follow sure throughout right. your entire life. And I would imagine that that no matter, I, I mean, I can't imagine a monarch ever displaying that understanding of duty again, both because she, they won't have had the formative experience, but also because there are too many other things mm. now that people can do. Yeah. Too many distractions. You know, it I mean, she would have had to, I think she would have had to have been an extraordinarily rebellious person not to have embraced that because, of course, her parents, I mean, they, they believe that they incarnate duty and her father is so is so sort of self-abnegating and self-effacing. And, and of course, as you say... Well, her it's, sister, it's, it's, I mean, her sister... But of, course, but of course, it's different for the younger. For the, of course. I mean, first of all, I, you've got I, that I, classic I, yeah. thing that we've talked about. We're both older siblings. It's such a recurrent pattern. The older sibling is more dutiful, more keen to please their parents and all this sort of thing. The younger sibling is, you know, the entertainer, the re- the rebel. I mean, those are those are archetypal parts, aren't they? But I think... It would have been. I mean, if if their roles had been reversed, you know, the characters would have been different because the, the pressures yeah, that I, Margaret I, would yeah, have been put under as child one would have been very different. I I, I agree, but I think that so Mar- Margaret, you know, she, she's also a child of the war. She's yeah. does her duty, all that kind of thing. But when the fifties and sixties come, there is more yeah. choice, and she embraces that choice in a way yeah. that the Queen is steeled not to. Well, I mean, to think about it this way, 
1945, she is about 19, is she? Yeah. She joins the Auxiliary Territorial Service and she learns to drive a Jeep and to, you know, there are all these sort of pictures that go all the way around the world of her with a spanner kind of, yeah. yeah, repairing engines and things. But still, she's 19 years old and she has still, she has led such a cloistered life. And there's this sort of detail that, again, I think is slightly poignant that when VE Day comes, she and Margaret are allowed for once allowed out of the palace. Yeah, so I pulled my uniform well down over my eyes. Um, going out, then she, she lines of people linking arms and walking down Whitehall, and all of us were swept along by tides of happiness and relief. Yeah. So the, the lines of people. I mean, how many times has she seen lines of people? And then all of us, and she will never again be able to say that. No. Well, as you say, she'll, she'll never, never be, be part of us. She'll never be part one of the part of the line. She'll always see the line, but yeah. she'll never again be part of the crowd, just one of the crowd, because they're sent out. I think there's a couple of guards officers who are sort of escorting them. Um, but otherwise, they're pretty and they have for once the cloak of anonymity. I mean, again, this is such a weird thing, thought, isn't it? What that must have been like to every time they looked out of the palace, they saw the great crowds and all those things. But I mean, she's the one person who could never have been, be allow, allow herself to really enjoy the Jubilees. No. in her name and all those kinds of things because she's the person at the centre. Anyway, I guess the next big thing is um, Philip. So Philip is five years older than her. They first meet when he's 18 she's 13. He sort of takes a fancy to her. He himself is a, he's slightly on the fringe, isn't he? Because he's a, a sort loose, of royal... isn't he? It's kind of a yeah. hint of looseness. He is, exactly. He's a man's man, I think it's fair to say. He's, he's got a slight raffishness to him. Yes. Which means that some of the courtiers kind of raise their eyebrows a bit. At one point, but he had a beard, of course. you could see it would be course. appealing to someone who oh, yeah. has, has lived a very kind of cloistered, dutiful life. Well, when you the see wild. the pictures of them, um, of course, he's famously played by Matt Smith in The Crown, isn't he? But when you see the pictures of them in the late 1940s, their, their wedding in 1947 or whenever it is. You know, he's tall, he's very slim. He He's clearly, you know, he looks like he was born to wear a naval uniform. A naval, yeah, He's a um, decorated war hero, so yeah. that's got to help. So some of the sort of courtiers say, oh, he's not really a gentleman. I mean, unbelievable, given that he's, you know, <laughs> yeah. got all this sort of he's royal ancestry. about 400 <laughs> kings and queens across Europe. Yeah. Um, he asks the king for his daughter's hand george VI says you have to wait till she's 21 1947 um and so it's in the meantime that she go, does this very famous um foreign trip so her first foreign tour she goes to south africa and she gives this radio address um which has been much replayed on the BBC in the last few hours. And her voice, but, her accent. Well, experts on what a sort of language experts say that she's a brilliant case study, don't they? Because they don't yeah. have so much evidence. Um, they, they, they have more evidence of, of her, how her voice has changed than for anybody else, I think, pretty much who's ever lived. Um, because they've got her when she's very young and then got her later and she had such a long life. And you're absolutely right, her voice has well she was born i mean i, I can't believe it's, a, it's again one of my great regrets that we didn't mention this earlier she is of course of, born under the premiership of stanley baldwin very much a friend how of the rest of history that? how did we miss that tom but actually you listen to anyone from that generation from baldwin's generation the politicians baldwin or mcdonald's ramsey mcdonald's their, their voices actually churchill is the outlier because by and large their voices seem much more high-pitched and much yeah. reedier than ours do to us and the queen's does sound in extremely sort of strangulated 
when she gives that speech on her 21st birthday, all my life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service, this famous line. Um, and of course, her voice is mellowed, I suppose, is the, is the way of putting it, as, a, as our voices do tend to do, I guess. Um, so uh, they get married November 1947. It's a relatively, by the standards of royal weddings, it's quite austere. I mean, when I say well, by the standards. rationing, aren't they? Because so- it's a rationing. On the other hand, there are 12 cakes. One of the cakes yes. is four feet high. She has a very nice dress and all this. Norman Hartnell. Norman Hartnell. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of, there's an effort to, um, you know, it's an, austerity, it's an austerity wedding, but it's lavish yeah. at the same time. So they actually tread that balance. I think the public wanted a bit of escapism and a bit of sort of razzmatazz, as it were, amid the Attlee government's kind of rationing and austerity. But... Um, you know, they manage that, I think, quite successfully. They have the honeymoon. You know where they have the honeymoon, Tom? I, I mean, you've got the notes, but you can pretend not to know. Uh, no, Dominic, tell me. Uh, it's in the New Forest. Is it? Yeah. Wow. It's in the... Wow. Who knew? Because actually, the place she loves to go on holiday, and she died there, is uh, is Balmoral in Scotland. I mean, that's yeah. really... I mean, that seems to have been her favourite place. Yes. Happy place. And what's, what is it about that? It's the outdoorsiness, isn't it? It's the yeah. sense of it being, I suppose, with, with all due respect to people in Balmoral, slightly old-fashioned. Well, um, you know, you said that, that the, the Queen said that had she not been Queen, she would have been a, a, a country lady surrounded by dogs and horses. Yeah. And I suppose in Balmoral, that's what she can do. That's what exactly. she can be. She can yeah. lead, be her alternative life. Yes, I think she, that's absolutely she, right. She, I mean, what's striking at looking at her, the course of her life, she, you know, she could have got, and Princess Margaret would be the obvious contrast. I mean, she could have gone on holiday anywhere. Yeah. She has very Mustique. few. Yeah. She has very few private holidays outside Scotland. I mean, the, the, I think they're, they're all. So, so she goes to France, which she, you know she loves. I think of all the foreign countries, all the countries of which she is not the head of state. I think she loved France most. Yeah, she likes Malta. She loved Malta. So she went um, for the first two years when they were married. She she has Prince Charles the King, I should say, pretty quickly, doesn't she? Um, so she goes into she has him in November nineteen forty seven. Philip is off playing squash at the time. Playing squash, yeah, which people always find a, a funny detail, but of course th- that was pretty much that's how chaps and, behaved. That's I mean the norm at any sort of walk of life uh, in the nineteen forties is that you know men were not sitting by the bedside holding their the their wife's hand and sort of applying flannels to the brow. They were off in the pub or talking to their mates or just sort of pacing nervously outside the room or something. In this case, playing sports cars very fast. Right. Was that what you were doing, Tom? That's what I would have done. Had I been (laughs) a parent and a father in the 40s. They go off to Malta. They spend a lot of time in Malta. She loves Malta. Um, I love Malta, I have to say. I can... I agree with the, the I agree with the late Queen about uh, well again the she's, she's um it's probably the, the closest she comes to experience of life as someone who's not in yeah. the absolute eye of of the world's attention. She's a naval wife, so the focus is on Philip. I mean, it's a brief, brief interlude. So, in a sense, she is the one who's walking two feet behind. Yeah, her yeah. Spouse for that but that's brief for, period, and I think he he liked that. That was a bit of a a halcyon moment for him because, of course, later on he'll chafe at the restrictions of the yeah. role. But destiny is looming, as it were. So at the end of 1951, her father is diagnosed with lung cancer, which is obviously kept a secret. And then in the new year, she's she's already gone on one tour of Canada and the United States, where it's been a tremendous success. And she's about to go on another one to East Africa. And I guess people may wonder why is she going on so many tours? And it's, it's partly, I think, because... 
this is a, a moment where the British establishment thinks it's really important to kind of renew the empire because the war had been so disruptive. You know, obviously, large swathes of the British Empire had been occupied. Yeah. So there's this sort of sense, oh, well, you know, we need to reassert these links and sending the young couple is the way to do this. So off they go to Kenya and they famously stay at a place called Treetops, this kind of game lodge, and they look at baboons and rhinos and, and stuff. And then it's on the 6th of February, they go off to another lodge at a place called Sagara, Sagara, I don't know how you pronounce it, in the foothills of Mount Kenya. And one of her aides hears, gets the news that um, the king has died in his sleep. And it's Philip who famously goes in and, I mean, anyone who's seen The Crown will have seen this scene, I, I imagine, goes in and breaks the news. She's 25 years old. She says uh, to the staff and stuff, I'm so sorry, we've got to go home. I've ruined everyone's trip, which is a extraordinary thing to say. And they fly back to London. And she's asked, what name will you um, rule under? And she says, well, my own name, of course. I mean, she could have chosen a different name, couldn't she? I mean, Elizabeth is an obvious one that you would choose. It doesn't have any, you know, if she'd been christened Audrey, some Boudica. other mid-century name, it would have been Boudicca, did you say? Yeah. You'd like to say Queen Boudicca? Or Athelflaed. Athelflaed. I think you're going to have to be waiting quite a, quite a while for an Athelflaed, Tom. I mean, the thing, the thing about Elizabeth, certainly for the English, is that the Elizabethan age is remembered as a golden age. It's the age of Shakespeare and Drake and the Armada and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so there is hopes, aren't there, that there will be a new Elizabethan age. Yeah, and Churchill. Churchill, who is all over kind of romantic uh, notions of English history like that. I mean, he get, he piles straight in. Famous well, he be reigns of our queens. Some of the Thomas. greatest periods in our history have unfolded under their scepter. That's I cannot said, believe that on such a day as this, you took over Churchill yourself, knowing that there was a brilliant Churchill impersonator involved with this podcast. <laughs> well, Dominic, do you know? You, do you know? Yeah. Do you know? I, I I saw that coming. I knew you were going to want it. <laughs> yeah. And like a kind of a, a genius forward, spotting a gap in the defence, I darted forward and hammered it into the back of the net. All the film people in the world, if they had scoured the globe, could not have found anyone so suited to the part. That's what right. the Churchill well, said of the Queen. The, the listeners can judge. Uh, who's I mean, he cried. Was, was he cried when he he thought of her becoming Queen. He would look at pictures of her in tears. I mean, Churchill was a great blubber, as he very said himself. He was, he? he was very yeah. proud of it, actually. He, he was not ashamed of it at all. He's very sentimental. He proclaims the new Elizabethan age, and there's a lot of talk about that in the 1950s. And, of course, the coronation itself seems like this tremendous high point. Actually, it rained... Um, the coronation just it rained on the day she was crowned, rained so heavily the day she um, died. on the day she died. Uh, 27 million people watched the coronation. I mean, the coronation is a great event that, that um, so is it true sales that it television. That is true, is it? Oh, yeah, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. I always thought that was a kind of urban myth that you would... No, 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 but... absolutely. People would people rush to get televisions or to rent them. I mean, there are so many stories of people going to their neighbour's house to watch the coronation um, on this mm. sort of little box flickering black and white picture but they they don't show the actual anointing do they that is no, they don't. viewed as as too holy exactly. to be gazed on by the prime tv uh, cameras uh, we're coming right to the end of this first episode i mean that's that's a, an appropriate moment on which to end isn't it tom because that moment the anointing i mean you that's know more, much more yeah. about this than i do so that's that goes back to what the anglo-saxons in, in english terms yes 
but as I say, I mean, ultimately, it's it's from the it's from the Old Testament. It's the yeah. idea that the chrism, the, the the oil, the anointing oil, kind of seeps into your skin, and and you are anointed. You you know you're God's anointed. Yeah. Sacral monarchy, Dominic. Sacral monarchy. It's a sacral monarchy. So and she takes that very very seriously, and that really is a perfect place, I think, to end this probably first of two episodes on yeah. the Queen's life because um, it's that in a way the tension between the antiquity of that ritual, the solemnity of the role that she takes on and uh, the country she rules, which over the course of the decades that follow will be increasingly skeptical of such notions that, yeah. as you say, makes it such a kind of fascinating. Well, figure. it's the antiquity of the, of the anointing and the modernity of television, I yeah. suppose the her yeah. coronation perfectly captures the tensions that are going to define her reign in the decades to come. So we'll get onto that in the next podcast, I think, and uh, we'll see you all for that next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.